Hello and welcome to Elite Team Leadership Podcast. We have our segment here, I wish you were a PM, and we've got Tyson Popplestone, a um, good friend of mine, yeah. who is going to be climbing Everest um, in April and May next year, which is pretty exciting. Welcome, Tyson. Hey, um, So basically, we've got you in today, and um, we want to go through some leadership and team stuff, and obviously yep. your team um, climbing the biggest mountain in the world is going to be critical to you making it. Um, tell us a bit more about your team that you're going to have and how it sort of works and for yeah. people out there knowing about Everest and tell me about the story. Okay, I'll tell you the story first and then I'll get into the team aspect of it. Done. So, started probably, oh, this started, the whole idea of Everest started years and years ago when I was a little fella. It was always one of those things that when you talk about it, you know, you talk about it as if something, it's not going to happen, it's a one day thing. Yeah. We've all got a one day thing. So for me, the whole idea started with, all right, I'm going to write down a hundred hundred ideas of yeah. one day things. I'll write down a list of things that I'll probably never do unless I focus on it. So hundred things of you want to do for when, when you want to have these done by? Just in life. Just in life. Really? So it's a okay. hundred things. Yep. But whenever it happens, it happens. Yep. But I've just got to be a little bit deliberate about getting it done. And so yep. the top of that list was to get Everest done. So I thought, you know what, it's a little bit of fun. I'd been speaking to a whole heap of people about like what it is I want to do. And then I posted it online, started a little blog. As soon as I posted it, my cousin, who lives in Western Australia, called me and goes, Oi, mate, are you serious about Everest? He goes, if you're serious about it, I've got a mate who runs a company called World Quest Adventures. Yeah. He goes, what he does is takes a team each year over to Everest, and he said, we'll do it at cost price for you if you're really serious about doing it. So I was like, oh, my God, like, do I actually want to get on board? So he told me a little bit more about it. I thought, well, you know what? It is a one-day thing. Next year is one day, so I may as well start planning for it. Um, so World Quest Adventures 2016 are going to take a team of about six of us over. Yep. And we'll take it from there. So when did you? When, when was that? Was that how many months ago did you decide to do Everest? How long ago? So I probably decided now officially decided about three months ago that three I was definitely ago. doing it. Wow. Three months ago, yeah. Three so months. it's yeah, pretty, pretty intense. Three months. So just, just, <laughs> I just want to touch on that that list of your before we go into it further in Everest. I just want yeah. to touch on that list of a hundred. What other things you got on there? Just, just, just curious. Oh, so we got the big and the small. We got a whole heap of random stuff. So. Um, it started off with doing a nudie run with my wife, <laughs> which was wife. incredibly good, which is a great 1K run. Yep. So it was well, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> to get it tough doing it or? <laughs> yeah, I guess we're, you're pretty fit now. We were bolting. So what happened, um, if you knew my wife, she's very, she's very laid back. She would hate it that people are hearing this, so sorry babe, but what happened? A lovely lady, by the way. A lovely lady, lovely body as well. You should have seen it that night. Maybe you did. <laughs> if you did, please don't hesitate to contact us, but um, so we... In many ways, that was probably more challenging than going to Everest. <laughs> she, so I got it one night, we were mucking around, and she was just being a show-off, and I said, babe, i got a list, 100 things. She's like, tell me about it. I go, well, one of the hardest ones is to do a nudie run. She's like, it's not that hard. I go, yeah, but you have to do it with me. She's like, get stuffed. I'm, I'm not touching it. So I was like, babe, get your gear off. We're going. 1K. And she's like, oh, really? So we live. See, I try that. It doesn't work really. <laughs> yeah, well, it wouldn't usually work. I'm not sure what happened. You can't just do it randomly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, folks out there, I've also got one of my good buddies, Marcus here, also known as Kusa. Um, so he got in with twice as well. So the big course for those ladies of you watching, he's one of the best looking mans I've ever met, <laughs> and he's single. So please also contact us if you're looking for a man. This guy's <laughs> the ultimate catch. <laughs> lucky, lucky, lucky we can edit this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so what we did was, um, so long story short, we did that nudie run. Um, another one, they're not all about my wife. Another one was to get her name tattooed somewhere on my body. So I got a little love heart on the inside of my left arm there with her name in it. It's Bogan, old school sailor Jerry style. Um, so let me describe it to you. It's like a yeah, love heart with Jesse written across. Um, that is a bit bogan. Yes, yeah. it's a bit old school. But yeah. uh, we like it. Like, but it's on a good bicep. 
Um, about three weeks ago, um, probably number two on the list was to give a stranger a thousand bucks, which is probably the coolest one that we've done. A thousand bucks. A thousand bucks. So we just had this work. So you were just walking along yeah. so, and gave out a thousand bucks. Yeah. So what I said was, that was another one I wrote down on the list. I thought, okay, well, I've got to save up for it. So I just kept on saving for a couple of weeks. And Am I random enough to give a thousand bucks to? Well, no. I, the rule was yeah. I wasn't allowed to know you. So right. we uh, we how, just. How did you go about identifying the person? Well, it was funny. Me and Jesse said, okay, we we got to find someone who doesn't look like they're loaded, and also. So no looks Ferraris like involved. No Ferraris. If you're driving okay. a Maserati, and you're looks, not getting my thousand bucks. Looks like that they wouldn't waste it. Yeah. Yeah, so you had to just be a complete so judgmental you and, bastard. You and, you and your wife, Jesse, went out. Yes. And going through what a shopping mall or something. Yes. Or, and you what? Just so, saw so we someone were, and gave them thousand yeah, bucks. Cake. Yeah. So we saw a lady. We saw a lady walk in there um, with her little daughter. She was in a bit of a hurry. So what I had done, I'd got a thousand in fifties just because it looked more impressive than a thousand in hundreds. <laughs> It's pretty, it's pretty hard to get $100 notes unless you go to the bank these days. It's true. Who goes it's to the true. Bank? So, yeah, that's a good point. Well, we don't have any money, so. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, what we did was um, we put all these 50s in an envelope, and I wrote, um, okay, this is a part of a list of 100 things I want to do. And I went up to this lady, I go, Excuse me, how you doing? And she's like, Sorry, not interested, thinking I was a salesman. And I go, Look, if you can just give me a second, this is going to be worth it for you. Yeah. And she's like, Mate, I'm in a hurry. And I was like, Okay, look, I've got a thousand bucks in this envelope. And she started walking away and shook her head. And I was like, No, 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 come back. I'm, I'm not kidding you like I'm actually dead serious there's a thousand bucks in here and she's looking at me like as an idiot I go so I opened the envelope a bit and she was like oh my gosh so I had a full attention <laughs> and I said look my name's Tyson I've got a goal one of the things I wanted to do just randomly give a stranger a thousand bucks just lucky that you were coming past at the right time um so I hooked her up and she was just sort of as you would she just sort of looked at me like I was a complete nutter which probably had some validity in that argument <laughs> so she looked at me like what are you doing and um yeah, so she looked... So she, what, what, what made you choose her? Like, when, when she walked past... Yeah. Why did you say, oh, this is the lady for me? So, I don't know. Like, I just got this... She just looks... She looked a bit stressed. <laughs> she, I'm sorry if you're listening. You're a beautiful lady. Uh, she looked a little bit stressed. She was walking along with her daughter. Um, I don't know. She just... I, I just got the vibe. Like, she was... She was so just describe when you walked away from that. Yeah. Like it's a pretty amazing thing. Ten out thousand bucks. Yeah. I don't know many people have done that. Um, just describe how you felt. Like it was a pretty awesome feeling. And did, yeah. did, did, did you look, do a look over your shoulder and see how she was reacting? Yeah, or massive she, look over the shoulder. What was she, what was she doing? Was she, just, she was buzzing. Was she, yeah. To be honest, um, to be honest, like people always say like giving is better than receiving, and I always think that's crap because I love getting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever someone gives me, I'm like, this is way better than giving away stuff. Um, but that day, I was I was just buzzing. Like, I, I gave it away. And people say, oh, it's a thousand bucks. You know, you're not a millionaire. You don't have loads and loads of money. But I thought, you know what? Like, it, seriously, whatever I could have bought with that thousand bucks wouldn't have been as good or as beneficial to anyone else as what giving that thousand bucks to her was. So um, I'm a big believer now. Like, I've sort of convinced myself and my wife that, like, to give away when you can is so much greater than just to be able to receive anything so um, I loved it and just a bit of background on this Tyson um, full-time job is you're a pastor mm -hmm. Tyson at what church is it so we're at City Life Church um, so you're a youth pastor aren't youth you? pastor so we work with 12 to 18 year old kids um, pretty much just do church services that are a bit more relevant to the old uh, um, to the younger kids rather than the older ones so as a leader of the church and yeah. leader in the community over there in, um, in Manningham and through um, Knox isn't it yeah and like how many kids and that below you like what sort of age and how many are sort of with you and, and looking up to you do you think yeah, on a daily so, basis and, and I guess from that give me some key things that you really you want to do as a leader in, in your area and, yeah. and how you go about it 
Well, first and foremost, I think when you say someone's a youth pastor, I reckon you get the idea in your mind. Or when you say someone's involved in church, you get this idea of someone who wants to whack you over the head with a Bible and tell you all about what God thinks. And that's the complete opposite of what I'm trying to be. That's the complete opposite of what I'm interested in. In fact, that's the one thing that probably turns me off church more than anything. Um, yeah, so I, I, I do a job where um, overall City Life Church has about 750 youth. As a, as a whole, but we're broken up into three different groups. Yeah. So the biggest group is based at Knox, which I worked for for a couple of years, and then we opened up a new campus over at Manningham, which is same age group, but um, you got about 80 kids over there, and it's just easier for them to get to rather than having to drive over the other side of town. Um, so, so, so about 750 kids, and as a youth pastor, I think what my biggest role is is basically just to make sure they're learning what it is that we're trying to teach. Um, so all of our teaching are based on, on the Bible, but in saying that, we try not to be too in-your-face, bible bash you will. Um, it's more just a, a love job, you know what I mean? Just having yeah. time for people, chatting with people, yeah. just hearing people's story. It's amazing, sure, I reckon, how many more. people are struggling, how many people are having trouble with just random things in life, but stuff we all struggle with. So... Um, through talking to these kids, I just try and give them a bit of time and any advice that I might have for them and, um, and, and just try and be there for them, really. It's a, it's a really rewarding job, but that's the major part of it. Now, let me get, let's get back on to Everest. Yes. So you're three months in. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how your week looks like. you obviously got full-time jobs. Yes. You've got a wife. You've got, yep. you've got you know, things hot. to pay. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you should see her. <laughs> well, we, like, we like to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, tell me about like your daily, your, your weekly routine because obviously you're looking at getting sponsorship for yeah. this and you've got sponsorship deals so far and you obviously got, you know, got a bit of way to go to get some yeah. more, um, but you've still got 12 months to go and yeah. we know you're going to get there. Um, but tell me about your weekly, how your, your weekly, you know, life looks like and, yeah. and the challenges that are involved. So the way that my, my work week is set up is Sunday, Tuesday and Friday, I'm working for the church. So Sunday I've got a job as a preacher, so um, another part of my role as a youth pastor is just speaking to the church as a whole. So Sunday, that's where I'm spending my time at the church, with the yep. kids, but with the whole church as well. Yep. Tuesday, I'm also, I'm doing a lot of the admin work, all the fun stuff, getting uh, data into the, uh, into the computer, all the important stuff to be able to touch base with the people we yep. meet on the Sunday. Friday, we have our youth event. Um, so pretty much that's my work role and the days in between um, I've got a big belief that that teenagers are are awesome they've got so much talent but so often they're just not told that (laughs) so they're not aware of the fact that they've got things to offer they've got things to be able to bring to the table Um, so I just try and draw that out so I'm a school teacher on the side as well um, doing a lot of work in in local schools around around Victoria (coughs) around Melbourne um, Berwick Secondary Waverley College Saturday's my day off. Saturday today, for those of you listening. So this is just the day where we go out, drink coffee, have a chat, and uh, and just real low key. So um, obviously, in between that, I've got to try and organise um, training for Everest. I've got to try and organise sponsorship for Everest, which is a big job. Um, so my general rule is, I'm just trying to play it low key because because it's such a big thing. Pretty easy to get overwhelmed with. Uh, so we thought that uh, the best way to go about it would just be to contact three new companies, three new companies each day, tell them what it is we're doing, tell them the benefits that there are uh, for those guys. We're doing a documentary on it, so plenty of publicity op- opportunities. Oh, so you got a documentary and getting done as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's a busy time. Tell us about that and um, and and what you've done so far and what are you. Yep. I think um, you mentioned before this we started recording here um, about your vision for this documentary and, and this yeah. excited me. Yeah. Um, tell me about it. 
so the documentary, the whole idea of the documentary was basically just to, I've been speaking to so many people about the trip that we're actually doing, yes. and throughout chatting to them about the trip, I realised there was a whole heap of excitement, so I thought, you know what, it'd be actually awesome, rather than just doing a trip to say I've done it, yeah. to actually document the whole experience so people could be inspired by it. So what we did is I contacted Melbourne University and said, look, I need someone who's good at documentaries, so they yep. gave us their best. Yep. Um, Juliet Cerrone, who's just made a move from animation into um, documentary filmmaking, yeah. is on board, and this girl is an absolute gun she's gonna uh, I've seen some of her work in the past so I'm I can't believe we got her and it's just an exciting time so she's pretty much started filming already we've started making the plans about what we want this documentary to be and uh, ultimately the whole documentary is based on this idea that all of us have passions all of us have dreams that we want to achieve we have things that we want to do but so often we get stuck in the the security of routine and we get stuck in the structures that we've already got we're in a nice secure job we've got houses that we like so the idea of actually stepping outside of that comfort zone and doing things that we love is, is almost something we don't even think about. Mm. Um, so Everest was one of those things for me. It was always a, always a one-day thing. It was always something that I thought about doing but um, never actually really committed to getting it done. So I thought, well, if I'm going to start talking about the fact that we're stuck in these structures and routines, I may as well actually step out and find out how we get this Everest thing going. So the whole question of the documentary um, that I want the audience to actually ask is, okay, what's my Everest? What thing with a little bit of heart and a little bit of planning would I be able to do that I thought maybe was impossible? So people out there, obviously, you know, we've got this... Um theme of nine to five working at your job, you do it for 20, 30 years, mm -hmm. you know, this is the, what we're taught from school, yeah. you're taught to be an employee, this is what you're going to do. Yeah. So you've got so many people out there and, you know, I face the same challenges, yeah. um, Kusa here faces the same challenges. Yeah. You've just gone out in a couple months ago and just gone whack, yeah. I'm doing Everest, which yeah. not only you got to find sponsorship for, because it costs about 50, 60 grand if I'm correct to do this, yeah. so it's not a cheap thing to do. Yeah. Um, so you're going out getting sponsorship, which is a huge amount of work, you're going out and actually training, we'll talk about a bit more training in a second. Yeah. But like, what was the key couple of components that got you from the couch sitting in your living room, yes. talking to your buddies about this one day maybe of going up Everest, yeah. to actually getting off your butt yeah. and doing it and doing what, I'm looking around this cafe we're sitting in here and there's probably 30 people and 29 of them probably aren't doing what they really want to do. Yeah. So tell me about that Tyson and for people out there could just go take it and go, I'm gonna do what Tyson did yeah. and go do something, do their Everest. Yeah, well just rewinding, I reckon you touched on a super important point at the very start of that question, speaking about what we're trained to believe that we've got to do with our lives in school. And I think schools, um, they do a lot of great things, but I think one of the biggest things that we've got to improve in education is this idea that if you can tick these certain boxes, you're gonna be successful in life. Because one of the biggest things I notice is when you talk about successful people or intelligent people, the first thing my question to ask is, okay, what score did they get in the end of year 12? And I think it's a great sign of intelligence and the ability to be able to work through a method or a problem. But the problem with that, merit, uh, that method of sort of judging someone's intelligence is it only judges it based on a certain box. Like you can speak to so many doctors who are really intelligent people, but the whole idea of having a conversation with these people is almost impossible because though they've got their knowledge, just their personal skills, or their personal intelligence, social intelligence is a real limited thing. So I think one thing that would be amazing to do is actually expand the vision of a school to not to say, hey, this is how you be successful and this is how you get into a good job that can get you good money, get you a good house, because that's what you're told to do. Yeah. I think one thing that I want to challenge people and what I'm in the education area for is to say, okay, what are you actually passionate about? Mm -hmm. What do you love? what do you care about is there any possibility that you can almost make your passion what you get paid for yes and I think that's a sad thing as well because so many people um, go through phases if you're passionate about your job and you're getting paid well you're in a lucky minority of people yeah. so many people I know there's phases you've got to go through a job sometimes where you, you get paid but your passion's not there or you're passionate but the, you know what I mean 
So I think one of the greatest things that we could actually do is find out, okay, how can you take your passions and get on out into the world? So for me, I guess this whole idea of, I'm in a whole new area of intelligence right now, this marketing world. I never was trained for it. Uh, it was something that if you had looked at my school grade, <laughs> you would have thought, mate, this guy's, this guy's going nowhere, which is true. With the way that I was doing in year 12, I just never really bought but, into the whole system. It, isn't it funny, like you go back to the whole year 12 thing, yeah. and the kids in particular do well, like, yeah. which is probably... I think you could probably take it across to anything. You do well on something, you want to talk about yourself in that area. Yeah. But like people hold on to, I got 97.3 or whatever it yeah. is. But it's interesting. I love um, Robert Kiyosaki, who's a big financial guru mm -hmm. on the planet with Rich Dad, Poor Dad series. Yeah. He talks about like in high school and how you're taught not to do anything wrong. You yeah. If you get something wrong, it's bad. Yeah. If, you don't, if you don't get the question right for the maths, yeah. you're wrong, you're stupid, so you should true. be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. You got that wrong. You're yeah. punished. Yeah. If you fail a test, you have to redo it again yeah. sort of thing. But it's interesting, this whole concept he talks about is all these A-plus students actually end up working for the C students. Yes. But the C students have learned that failing is not the, not the end of the world. They've yeah. learned something more yeah. about themselves. And you have there's so many examples of people pulling out of school in year yeah. 10 and year 11 who go on to absolutely have these huge careers. And you've got the classic examples of like a, like a Henry Ford or a, or a Branson or yeah. a... Um, you've so got true. Steve Jobs even pulled out of... Yeah. Harvard, not Harvard, out of one of the things... If I remember correctly, yeah. whichever university, but he pulled out anyway and followed his dream with Apple. Yeah. So you got this education, you got this mass education. People telling you stupid if you fail a test. Yeah. But yet these guys are going on and being more successful. Yeah. Like, it's so as true. you've been a teacher, like, what? Give us a bit more insight in that. Oh, I just reckon. I, I reckon. The things that we have set up in, in, in school, it, it does help. It can help you think, it can help you plan, it can help you work through methods and things like that. But I think the biggest problem is what you just touched on, the whole idea that if you do this, you're going to be successful. Because it's just not true. And what is success? Like, so our culture measures success by how much money you have. Well, that's one element of success. Um, we were just speaking about it before the camera got started. But what about what about Marcus's mate who, who you know, he spent his time doing some travel, he spent his time going around the world. Um, uh, that's a form of success as well, you know, just being experiencing other cultures, experiencing new people. and. I think you just got to find out. Okay, what is the success you're trying to achieve? And like, so so many of us just said, okay, we want to have a lot of money, but like, what do you want to do with it? Like, is there something that you're actually planning on doing with your money, or you just want to have a big bank account? Yeah. For me, as much as I want to have money, uh, which isn't, to be honest, a, a big priority in my life, as as much as it is to have experience, as much as it is to work with people. Um, I would much rather be successful in a way that I'm actually excited about living than being successful in the world's eye and just hating every day of my life. Well, it's interesting. Like We're getting a bit off track from Everest here, but I love this story. Yeah. I think I, I've, I've talked to you about this before, but that cool story of this Mexican fisherman, I've told you yes, the story. Yeah. Like where, basically a few folks out there, I don't know exactly how it goes, but it's along these lines, it's, it's this uh, Mexican fisherman, right? He's out there and he comes back in from the morning's fish and he has a few fish. Yeah. And um, and this this Harvard graduate meets him, and he goes, uh, "How'd you go today?" And he's like, "I caught some fish." And he's like, "Oh, great!" And he's getting excited, and he tells the Mexican, "Hey, we should um we should you know buy you a few more boats and get a few employ a few more people, and um, we'll go out there and um, we'll get some more fish." And then the guy's like, "Oh yeah," and he's like, "What's your day plan? What's your you know what are you doing today?" And the Mexican says, "Well, I'm just going to go home, and we're going to cook some fish, and my family and friends are going to come over." Um, in the afternoon, I'm going to have a siesta and relax. Um, and then at, at, at night time, we're going to have a big feast and, and really relax and enjoy and watch you know, whatever they want to do and go entertain. Um, and then the following day, I'm going to get up and go fish again. Yep. But then the Harvard graduate goes, well, 
I could buy you a few more boats. <laughs> yeah. I could employ a few more people. Yes. And we could, you know, grow your business, right? Yeah. And then we'll move to Mexico City, the capital. Yeah. We base you out of there and we'll have more boats. Yeah. We'll get bigger and bigger. We'll base you from there. You can run the company. And then we're going to go to LA and branch out. We're going to go to North America. Cover the whole of North America. We're going to buy a bunch of, we're going to have a whole fleet yeah. going through into different industries of fishing. And then finally, after about, after a while, we're going to go across to New York. We're yeah. going to go global. <laughs> yeah. We're going to take your company global as a fishing yeah. company global. And, 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 the, and the Mexican fisherman goes to the Harvard graduate goes, and uh, how, long was the, how long will this take? And he's like, oh, about, I reckon about 20 years, 25 yeah. years, we'll be able to do that. Yeah. And then the Mexican goes, okay, cool. And he's like, so when I've got to New York and I've, I've, I've conquered the world in fishing and boating and that, made all the millions, yeah. what do I do then? And the guy's like, oh, well, you can retire to any you know, little beach village and you can you know, go fish in the morning and you go have a, have a big lunch with your friends in the afternoon and have a siesta. The stuff he's already and you doing. can do whatever you want to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. And, and isn't that amazing? It's, a, it's funny, and it's the mindset I reckon so many of us get trapped in is, okay, you need a lot of money to do the things you're already doing. The fact is, I reckon half the things that we dream about doing is within our reach right now. Yeah. But it's just not we're aware of, of where we're trying to go. That's a great story, though. I love that. It is. I'm actually really glad you said that one. So back to Everest. We're getting, yes. we're getting, tell me about we Everest. We can talk all day about things. But <laughs> yes. back to Everest. So tell me and the, us and the folks listening about yes. um, Everest and climbing and what actually involves. So you leave, you're leaving, I believe, on the, about the 1st of April next year? So uh, first, uh, first of March. 1st of March yeah. you're leaving? Okay. Yeah, so it'll be so a, bit, a little bit it. earlier. So the whole idea, the reason we leave at that time of the year is there's a certain section of the year where it's safer to climb Everest. Safer, in inverted commas. Um, so there's a certain time of the year where it's safer, where the weather's a little bit more relaxed and um, where people can actually have the opportunity to even reach the summit without getting blown off the side. Um, so it is a two-month trip, which surprises a lot of people, but the reason it's two months is because it's so bloody high. We're at, uh, what is it, 8,800 and something metres altitude. The, the, the way most people compare that is it's almost the cruising height of a commercial airplane, which is really high, sort of scary when you think about that. But because it's so high, the oxygen levels at that height are so much lower. Because we live basically at sea level, for me to go over there and try and climb it in a day is ridiculous because my body just can't adjust to those altitude, uh, the oxygen demands that you're going to have at such altitude. So a lot of people think when you go to Everest you're just going to start at the bottom, walk straight up the top and then come back down when you're finished. But, but it's actually a far longer process. There's four camps on the way up. So you start at base camp, which is still 5,000 metres altitude. You're still already a little bit headachey there yeah. <laughs> from the lack of oxygen. And you go up to camp one, you let your body adjust, you'll probably feel sick for a little How while. How long do you stay at base camp for? On the, at, at the very start? Yeah. So you're going to just have to see how your body responds. One mistake that so many climbers make is they get there, they think, okay, we're on a tight frame here, and yeah. they try and hurry. So uh, basically, once you settle in, once your headaches go away, once you're feeling a little bit more at home, if you're yeah. you as much at home as you can at the base of a massive mountain, um, you, you're basically just going to monitor it as you go. So how long usually? Well, I reckon it'll take probably maybe four or five days. It might even take a little Only bit less. Only four or five days? Well, depending on how you respond. So... So you're at base camp, yep. prior to going to camp one, you stay only four or five days? Not at camp one, you won't stay four or five days at the start. Sorry, at base camp at the start, you might stay for Wait, a few days. Okay. And then once you get up to camp one, you'll probably stay there for a night so yep. who, and come who back down. So who sets those time frames at base camp? Is it the Sherpas or is it just based on how you're feeling? Well, I think it's a general knowledge sort of thing. In terms of the mountain climbing world, yep. if you're going to go to base camp and stay there for a couple of days, you're going to have people with you that are monitoring your, your blood oxygen levels and things like that. Um, so I think amongst that community, it's a little bit more well known. So we'll get there um, and the people that we're going with are going to say, okay, we're right to go or we're not right to go. And based on what they say, based on their input, I'm going to go, okay, because I'm not going anywhere without them, especially if I don't have their approval. So you're at base camp, you've got the green light after a 
five days you were saying to yes. go to climb to base camp one. Now, do you just go base camp one, stay there for a few days, and two, three, and then to the top, or do you? How's it work? So what you do, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you don't go just straight to one, straight to two, straight to three. You start at base, you go to one, yep. you come back to base. Okay. Let your body adjust back to the oxygen levels, which at base camp is a lot higher than the ones at camp one. Yep. So you come back down to base camp, you chill out for a couple more days, then you might go back up to one, come back down to base. And then do that a couple of times, and then after a little while you'll find that once you get to camp one, you're not as exhausted as you were the first time. Yes. So you might get to camp one, and rather than turning around, you go, okay, well today we're going to go to camp yeah. two. Yep. And you'll stay at camp two for a night. Start and you'll come back down to camp one and come back down to base. Come back down again. Okay. You know what I mean? So And it's a, it's a very so, gradual process. So you're doing a constant amount of going up and then coming back yeah. down. And I've heard a rumour, I've heard a, a story that you co- you cover the distance of Everest about 12 times in any one attempt. 12 times? Yeah. Wow. Just based on how much walking you're doing. Which sort of frustrates me because it thinks <laughs> the record for climbing the mountain by a local guy was 8 hours 50. So the fact that I'm going to be there for two months just almost seems embarrassing. <laughs> so you get to camp three. Yes. Um... And then you make you make your, I guess your launch and you're taking off for the top. Yes. Um, what time? What time of night? What time of the mor- during the day do you leave, or do you during, live during the night? Well, from, I'm not 100 percent sure on the actual time that, that most camps leave, but from what I've heard, from Camp Four to the summit. Oh, camp pa- Four. Yes. Apparently, it's about a 12 hour trip. Yep. 12 hour walk. So you're going to leave it at 12 mid- hours up and 12 hours back. Well, as far as I know. Yes. I'm pretty sure I've got my research to do, obviously, but we start at Camp Four. We get. Uh, at about midnight, yep. and the whole idea is you're climbing through the dark most of the night. Yep. Basically, so when you get to the summit of the mountain, you're gonna have a little, little so bit of a look around. Let me, just, but, yeah. let me just think of that. So, you're climbing during the dark. Yes. You're at above 8,000 meters. Yes. You've got 10, 20,000 foot drops. Yes. And because you're climbing along the edge of the mountain, yeah. aren't you? So you've got 10, 20,000 foot yeah. drops. Just for those of you who don't know, James is incredibly good at painting visual pictures, and right now, yeah, I'm a little bit scared, so continue. So, it's <laughs> in the dark, Yes. it's minus whatever, Yes. you can't see anything, yeah. and you're just following a little torch. Yes. I, just, how, does that, how does that sit with you, and, and the fact that, well, just for people out there who don't know, they, there is... No helicopters can rescue you from above Camp 4, is that correct? That, that is read, correct. I've read that Yeah, correct. if I had more time, I'd try and plan on the development of one before I got there. <laughs> <laughs> based, on, based on what I know about helicopters and rotor blades, it's not going to happen. So so above Camp 4 is the death zone, isn't it? That's what it's referred to as, yeah. Death zone. And why is it... Give us a bit of a reason so why the, it's called that. The whole name death zone is, is basically because the human body can't survive there for any longer than, well, depending on the person, a, a day or two. Yeah. So if you get once you get to the death zone, it's pretty much business time. You got to get up and you got to get out. So your body's basically dying. A little bit. Yeah, you say there. it like that, but I just like to think that I'm getting really tired. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's so, true. So for a normal person, like yeah. once you reach the summit, yes. how long roughly can you stay up there? Well, I'm not sure. I know the world record for someone at the summit, which I'm not going to be attempting to break, is 24 hours. Yeah. Wow. 24 hours. So when we get to the summit, I always say this with Jocker. Once we get to the summit. I'm going to spend a couple minutes, I'll take a couple of little happy snaps, I'll make sure the companies that I'm supporting get their nice photo, yeah. really well done. I might even have a little look around, and i get the hell out of there. <laughs> so. That's cool actually, about, about the company, just touch yes. on that. So so these people who get to um, sponsor you, you know, yep. which is awesome, and they 
can go up there and then yeah. you get to like they get a, a photo with their logo on yeah. top of the mountain. Yeah, really. Yeah, which is That's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. How so many companies going allowed to be on that? But you're you're already fielding spots on obviously sponsoring you going yeah. on top. So we've got a couple of different sponsorship packages. So obviously only the major package is going to have the opportunity to have their flag on the summit. Um, we've got three of those. Yep. We've got three companies that are going to have the opportunity to have their name up on the summit. Um, but obviously the sponsorship packages have a whole lot more than that. We're, as I said, filming a documentary. Yeah. Um, so for something like this, you touched on it yeah. earlier, 60k price. Um, also want to try and get to put together a whole heap of money for the National Stroke Foundation, which is um, uh, you know, stroke is something that's close to our family. My granddad died of a stroke just a couple of months ago, so I really wanted to support their cause. The, the, the whole documentary is going to be based around this idea of what's your passion, like I said before, um, and we're going to have space on my jackets for companies' logos to be able to be presented. Uh, we're going to present this. Uh, we're, we're pitching it to a couple of TV networks, SBS, hopefully. The chick, that I've done doc uh, chick that's doing documentary the documentary for us, Juliet, has, has done a lot of work for Channel 31. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be taking it back to them. But even if all that fails, uh, which we don't think it will because it's going to be a very good documentary, yeah. uh, we're going we're gonna, to uh, pitch it in the Australian uh, Film Festival. Awesome. So people all around Australia are going to have an opportunity to see it, which is a massive, massive so, uh, sort so of outreach. So for you know, viewers listening to this and get a chance to look at this, so you'll, you'll be back... May next year, and then obviously editing will happen. So, when's yeah. the Australian Film Festival, or how do people, um, you know, keep? Or how do people follow your trip? How, what would they do to follow you? And um, and if they're interested in, you know, um, becoming a, like a company sponsor, what could they do? Yeah, well, just get in contact with me. I've got a website put together, which is it gives you a lot more information on the trip that we're actually doing. What's that website called, sorry? So that's just TysonPopplestone.com. Nice, easy one. P o double p l e s t o n e. In case you forgot, write it down. It's ridiculous. If you're laughing right now. I'm judging you. Stop judging me. Uh, go check it out. That's got all the contact details, all the sponsorship packages. Um, I've got some blogs and stuff going. There's even a couple of photos of my wife if you're just interested in having a look at her. Um, go and check that out. Yeah. Um, sorry, once again, babe, but you'll, you'll agree. Even if you just want to contact me and say, wow, you were right about that, I'm, I'm more than happy to receive that. But jump on the website, have a look. Also, facebook.com uh, slash journey to Everest. You'll find journey, me there. Journey to Everest. Slash journey to Everest. Journey to Everest. That is cool. Yeah. So, wow. So, in, in terms in terms of your okay, your team, and this is what we're obviously all about with um, what I do in team and leadership. Yes. Um, tell me about your team you have around you. Yeah. Um, actually, on the mountain, then we might go touch on the team you got around you in the lead up. Yeah. So, tell me about the Sherpas and and what's that? How's that work? And yeah. Are you carrying your own stuff? And yeah. Okay. Tell me a bit more about that and and just I guess the the trust and the and um, how vital each member is to yeah. the team. So I think one of the biggest things is uh, the Sherpas are basically the local guys who, who do all the dirty work. They've got a reputation for, for being the hard-working men on the mountain. So these guys actually, um, the local guys who are far more accustomed to actually the oxygen levels, the climbing, things like that, they, these guys have an amazing reputation, putting their life on the line, making it safer for us. So they're a crew that go ahead of us. They look after our tents, they look after our food, they look after our bags, um, all that dirty stuff. So, so they're going to be a major part of the team. Without those guys, it's almost impossible. Well, it is for me. It's going to be impossible to do it. So, um, Kevin Fairbrother, the guy who actually owns World Quest Adventures, yep. he's going to be there with us, joining us. Um, uh, my cousin Jamie, who is in the military, is just a tough, tough unit. <laughs> there's two guys that I want to be there, apart from the Sherpas. It's those two guys. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of other guys um, uh, that, that we're looking at getting on board, but we're not 100% sure who yet. So if that's you, even contact us because. There's going to be space for, for people to be potentially so get on board. People could jump on board. If you want to jump were... on board, yeah, if you've got 60k laying around, you want to climb a big fat mountain and climb it with a good looking bloke and his mates, 
come and contact us because there's space for you. Uh, so they're going to be the, the, the main team around us um, on the journey. And just tell me about because like we hear these, you know, you always get these these isolated cases, but the, you know we love it as the media loves it and so forth. But you're up in the mountain, you're in the death zone. Yes. Now I say the death zone it gives it a bit of a, a media creepiness about it. It does, yeah. But um, it makes me scared. There literally is. There is. There is bodies stacked along the course yeah. as you go up because you can't take these bodies down because yeah. it's, it's the helicopters can't reach them. Yeah. And, and as a climber, you're using every bit of energy you can't pull someone else down. But like, just tell me about that feeling, like of if if say one of your the Sherpas or say one of your mates up there, like just describe. Have you thought about that? And and, and if they get in, they get a bit tired as you say yeah what goes to your head in that sort of thought those scenarios no oh, it's scary of course it's scary i think anytime anytime you hear about someone dying doing something like that it's it's terrifying thought the whole idea of death is a freaky thing in itself yeah uh, so the fact that this mountain's got a reputation for taking a couple of those lives is scary but i mean if you look at the s- statistics and 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 i'll say this with a word of caution because i understand the danger i definitely don't want to go there thinking oh this isn't going to happen but I, I think when you look at the statistics you see that four and a half thousand people have successfully climbed it four and a half thousand Two and a half, two hundred and something people have been killed on the mountain. Two hundred people. Oh, so, yeah. so the statistics technically are in my favour. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, but in saying that, I mean, it's, it's a realistic thing, and I think you wouldn't want to go to Everest and, and undermine the capacity that it does have to, to take away your life pretty easily. And, and what's your strategy, uh, like in terms of if you say you're walking up during the night? Yes. And you're starting to feel a bit tired, and yeah. you've got five hours to go. Have you got plans, or what's what's your what's your because obviously, just your wife and your family and friends back here, yeah. or, you know, want you to come home. Yeah. What what sort of strategy you got in place to, to protect yourself from your ambition of just getting blinded by the glory and yeah. um, and putting yourself in you know severe risk? Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I think one of the problems. Or, or you just going no matter what, you're going to climb Everest. Is that yeah, the goal? Yeah. Nah, How's nah, it work? Definitely not. So for, for me, the whole idea of climbing Everest is uh, it's an exciting thing, and I think one of the reasons that so many people get killed on the mountain is based on the fact that, as I say, when you're putting so much time, so much training, so much money into an event like this, it, once you get there and your body starts to feel flat and you're so close to the summit, it becomes really easy to say, I'm just going to push myself past this and try and keep coming. Uh, one of the biggest, most amazing things is on Everest, once you reach the summit, that's actually not the safest part over. In fact, most of the... You know when you go on a long walk and it's time to turn around? Yeah. You just wish you were home? Descent. Well, it's the, same on, it's the same on Everest. Once you get to the summit, a lot of people think, oh, we're safe now. But the fact is, you still got to come all the way back down. You're tired. Your oxygen levels are a lot lower. You're not thinking as clearly as you would be. Um, so we start, a lot of the accidents happen on the way down. So for me, I'm going to give doctors full responsibility to say, you know what? Okay, it's time for you to stop. Is there doctors up there? Uh, there's doctors up there. Oh, really? Yeah, so we're going to have a doctor at each camp. Oh, wow. Um, local guys... Um, that are going to be able to just monitor our blood levels, monitor our oxygen levels, monitor our, our sort of fatigue. Um, and, and I've said to those guys, at any point, if you tell me I'm not ready to go, I don't argue. It's time to turn around and come back down. Um, for me, Everest isn't something that I'm willing to lose my life over. And the idea of conquering Everest, beautiful though it is, it is not the purpose of this trip. The purpose of this trip is, um, the, the, first of all, the dream. The fact that we're talking about going to Everest right now is an incredible thing to, yeah. not only myself, but a lot of people listening. But um, I think one of the coolest things about Everest is once you, once you actually get there. For me, that's a massive achievement. I'm there. I, I, I'm the. Isn't that classic? Like so many people won't start something. No. Because they they, they won't climb. They won't, they're afraid they won't climb the Everest. Like the fear yeah. of not completing yeah. something. Yeah. But just so you just said it outright. Then you, you're winning by just getting there. Yeah. 
Yeah, the very fact is that they even a lot of people hear 60 grand, big scary mountain, a lot of training, and that's enough to turn them off. For me, that's a, that's a, I was about to say that's enough to turn me on, and in a weird mountain way, it sort of does. But what we're going to be doing is, uh, is once I get there, the things done, when it's time to turn around, it's time to turn around. If that's at the top of the mountain or, or three quarters of the way up the mountain, well, so be it. I've got a, as I keep saying, a hot wife to come back to. Um, and, and, and a European trip at the end of next year that I want to be going on. So, uh, yeah, it's time to turn around, it's time to turn around. Wow. Yeah. So, I guess for people listening, like, whether you're starting a business or in your sporting career or whatever you're doing, you know, like, it's that classic example of it. It's the taking part. It's yeah. The, the rolling the sleeves up yeah. and getting in there rather than then actually, you know, making the million dollar yeah. business or making, um, you know, running that sub four and a mile, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it's the taking part and the training and the process and, and just having, lesser words, the nads to get in there. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Seriously. Like, well, I think it's Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook who's famous for his saying, fail harder. Yep. Fail harder. Yeah, like, it, it. it's something our it. culture is so obsessed with. You know, let's succeed, let's succeed. But how, how about we aim that big that like, you're going to fail? Like how I, about, I don't want to touch back into it, but it's back, it comes from our schooling. Like, yeah. It comes from our that failing, as we talked earlier. But yeah. Like that Zuckerberg. Like, yeah. And look at him now. Fail harder. I love it. And I think it's something that if we, if we you know, took on a little bit more passionately, we would understand the fact that, hey, we can aim big. And if you're going to fail, we'll fail at something big rather than failing at something that's just easy. <laughs> I love um, one of my, my personal artists is Jay-Z and he has a famous line in one of his songs. He's like, um, I think it goes along the lines of, um, I'd rather I'd ro- rather die enormous than live dormant. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and how cool is yeah. that in his famous famous song, Can I Live? Yeah. Like, you know, rather die enormous than live dormant. Yeah. Like, and it's just classic, like, because we, we get, like... Just, I, I'm just so inspired by you, Tyson, and how you managed to get off your seat because yeah. so many people don't do it. So if you could give me going rewinding back, we've got the start. Yeah. Tell me about you're three months in and you still got about twelve months to go. Yeah. Tell me about some of the, you know what goes through your head when you get up in the morning and you've got you've got I've got X amount of dollars still to raise. Yeah. I've got to get this sort of fitness level. Yeah. I've got so much planning. Yeah. You've got your job. You, yeah. you teach. You, you, you got, you know, you got your wife. You yeah. got a friend hang out. You got your other, every other job. Yeah. Like that's exactly right. I was just thinking the same question. Like, how do you stay motivated? How yeah. does it? What, what, what pushes you to get to the top there? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's such a good question. I reckon for anyone listening as well is to understand. You hear someone like me talking about a thing like this, and automatically you just assume that this person's in a different caliber. They just got a different mindset. Got some, but like it actually. I actually find it scary. I actually find it intimidating. I am scared that I might fail. I am scared that it might not work out the way I'm planning. I am scared that all this heart that I'm putting into it is going to leave me disappointed. But the fact is, I'm, I'm, I've learnt I've learnt that uh, for me, I'd much rather put my whole heart into something, get excited about, it, and feel the disappointment of failure rather than just never ever even giving it a crack. So, um, as a sort of a link how, into what? How do you know that? How how do you get to that point? Of just giving a whole heart to something, like how how do you get to that point? And I know from talking to you, how do you be so consistent? Mm. Like, like a lot of people can put in a great week of work, a great month, a great six months, but the, this project alone's nearly eighteen months yeah. long, and there's no room for yeah. slowing down. Yeah. How do you can maintain the high level? Yeah. Is it? Are you just focusing on one day at a time? Yeah. How, how do you maintain well, it? To be honest, I think I reckon this will take a lot of people by surprise. My answer to this question is: whenever I commit to something, though I'm putting my heart into it, I hold it very loosely. I understand that the fact is, like, 
I could easily break my leg tomorrow. Like people's lives get taken in a click crossing the road, not just on a mountain. So uh, the fact is, Everest isn't even guaranteed next year. So I can work at it as though I'm going. I can work at it as though I'm trying. And what I'm saying is not that I'm not going to be going to Everest if I can help it. I'm saying the fact is I could break my leg tomorrow and it just completely rules out the opportunity. So I'd much rather hold it loosely and understand that it can be taken away from me. So then if the failure does come, that we're saying fail harder, it doesn't tear you to pieces, it doesn't destroy your confidence for the next ambition that you have. I, I hold it loosely enough to be able to say, okay, I want to do this, but the fact is there's no control over whether I hurt myself and whether something actually stops me from being able to get there. And for me, that actually encourages me to work towards it because even though I may be disappointed, I understand the fact that there's risks in, in any commitment that we make. So I just want to look into hold it loosely. It's an interesting yeah. way of looking at it. So you know, it takes a special person to be able to hold something loose yeah. that you're so passionate about, I think. And, and I think that's a, it's a, it's a real constant, it's a constant uh, mind check for me. I think our world is so obsessed. We get into our workforce, we get into whatever it is we want to do. And, and I know this for firsthand. And we get tunnel vision. We see what it is we want to achieve and we get tunnel vision. All of a sudden, the rest of our world is blocked out. This is all we can see. Now, if all our life is dedicated to this one particular thing and this one thing fails, like where's our hope? Where's our trust? What, 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 that destroys you. But I mean, if you can, if you can aim as hard as you as hard as you want at this particular goal, but understand that potentially, if this thing doesn't work out, you've still got hope in other ambitions and other dreams. Well, I, I feel like there's a lot more hope in that than going far out. Well, my life's destroyed now. Because I guess for you, like, be interesting. I'll, I'll get you to do it in a second. But tell me in your life, like how. What do you value, and, and, and just to give us an idea, yeah. is Everest your number one value? Is nah. that the number one thing in your life at the moment? Or, nah. so, like, or where's, it, where's it sit compared to other things? Can you run down the top things you value right now? Well, and, pretty much. I think uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of my life is just driven by clarity on what it is that I want to achieve. I think uh, for so many of us, our busyness is almost just a form of laziness that stops us focusing on what's really important. Yeah, I mean, really we, cool. we fill up our days with, with so much stuff, and we come home exhausted because we've had a long day at the office. But if you're honest with yourself, so many of us hate our jobs, we hate what we're doing, but because of the fact that we're so busy, we don't take time to actually step back and go, okay, what am I passionate about? So for me, my biggest passions, and I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian, so in this order, these are my values in life, my, uh, I value God, yep. he's my first and foremost thing, I understand that without him I wouldn't even have the opportunity to be here, yes. wouldn't even have the opportunity to be able to be walking around and dreaming about these things. My second thing is my family, my wife, my friends, my family. Um, third thing is my health, without my health there's not going to be an opportunity to do things. Yes. Um, my adventure. Yep. That's my hobby. So it's fourth, fourth on your list. Yeah. So I guess it goes back to you holding things loosely. Yeah. If you don't do this adventure, it's fourth down your list. You've got, you've got God, you've got your fam family and, yeah. and your friends, and you've got your health. Yeah. So this is like, so that, I guess for the audience listening, gives you an understanding of where this sits. And even yeah. though you are going hardcore at this. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's it's fourth in line. Yeah, really. you, you realise it's bigger things. So I guess so true. you hear of like football players and stuff who yeah. retire and, and have breakdowns and, and can't get on with it because that's yeah. all they're focused on. Yeah, this for you is just something you're going hard at. It. Yep. you understand where it sits in line. Yeah, and in saying that, like, don't get me wrong, it sounds really impressive when I say that and say, um, okay, it's fourth down the list. But so often, I feel like that list is a constant readjustment thing. I mean, it's so easy for me to sit here and go get my little preach on and say, oh, okay, yeah, God's at the top of my list. But the fact is, so often I focus more on Everest than I do on God. I focus more on Everest than I do on my family. And for me, that's a constant readjusting of, okay, Tice, these are your priorities that you know. These are where your priorities should be at, how you're handling it. And so often the list might be upside down, it might be sideways. And for me, it's a constant coming back to it and going, okay, Tice, hold it loosely because it's not the most valuable thing in your life. How often do you come back to that and, and, and 
look at your areas of life and how you're putting time into it? How often do you, is it well, weekly or is it monthly? I, I, don't, I, I don't do or it. Or just whenever you sort of think I need to have a yeah. evaluate. So I don't do it, to be honest, uh, that tunnel vision story that I was talking about before, I, I'm the ultimate, yeah, this stuff is born out of me realising far out, okay, I've got to change something here. I'm the ultimate tunnel vision man. I'm the ultimate guy going, far out, this has to happen, it has to happen. Um, so for, for, for me so often, it might be my wife to go, babe, like, why are you so stressed today? And I go, Far out. I'm stressed because I've still got 12 months of training to do. I've still got a lot of work to do here, and I've realised that okay, my priorities have been adjusted. So it might just be a, it might be a daily thing. Sometimes I've got a couple of weeks without even going. Actually, we're going all right here, uh, but it's not something I sit down each week and go, okay, how am I going? It's something that at the moment I might go, okay, far out. There's there's a bit of stress here. There's a bit of frustration here. Why am I feeling like this? So getting down to a practical level, and I, yeah. just, I just sort of want some people to you know, take away some cool things from yeah. this. So if, if people out there looking at their own lives and looking at how they're balancing their life, yeah. between work, career, family, etc. Yeah. Like, um, so what would you say, like, if you were giving tips to me and Kusa here, what would yeah. you say, how do we evaluate our own lives? Because this is what obviously I do for a living. Yeah. And like, how do, you, how do people out there do it? Do they get the notepad out and go, okay, these are my these are the most important things in my yeah. life. What was your advice? Well, for me, it was it's seriously just all about clarity. Right now, I'm reading a book by Ken Robinson called Finding Your Element. Yep. And the whole idea of finding your element is just taking the time to find out what it is you care most about. I mean, so many of us talk about the fact that okay, I want to have a lot of money so I can support our wife. But in the in the process, we completely forget about our wife while we're committing all our time to be able to do our work. Yeah. And I think it's ironic that we say things like that because I know in my own life. If I'm saying to my wife that you're the most valuable thing in my life, and I'm spending 100 hours a week at work, and she's saying I just want to have some time for you, and I say I'm doing this for you, the fact you're fooling yourself because the fact you're not doing it, you're doing it for you. Your most important thing is your wife. You've got to find a way to, to adjust your work schedule to be able to actually link up with her. So for me, it's actually saying. Okay, what is the most important thing? What are my passions? What are my talents? What are my abilities? How can I live in a way that I actually fulfill these things, let these flourish, rather than just going along just with the business of life, never even thinking about this stuff? So if you're listening, you're thinking, far out, okay, well, I'm not actually 100% sure. I would say to you, okay, take the time to, to switch off the iPhone, get off Facebook, get the TV out of the way, and just look at yourself say, okay, what do I care about? What am I passionate about? Do I love people? Okay, have I got talent to talk to people? Have I got talent in the corporate world? Have I got talent? Find out where your talents are and your passions and really aim at those things. If your passion is your wife, spend time with her. If your passion is your job, okay, spend time with her. But I think it's just about making things work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting. I just sort of got my mind thinking about even... Um, so I'm sure there's so many people who don't have their priorities in line yeah. like, and um, and do get caught up. I, I, I personally, I love what I do here and um, and spending a lot of time on it. Yeah. Um, but then you've got to look at it and, and you, you say to yourself, I rate um, health ahead of my work, but then you're like, hang on a second, if you're only getting two hours sleep a night and you're eating KFC, mm. yeah. you're not really valuing your health. Yeah. You know, health are you, yeah. like, and it, it does, you probably could really put together a little structure for yourself yeah. and write down, um, like write down a list of things, what's yeah. your order, and then you could also probably do a weekly look and go, well, am I really living up to that? Yeah, um, it's so true. Uh, yeah. and, and it puts it in perspective. When you when you have a bad day at work, you go, well, work's actually fourth thing on the list. I've got health, um, family, relationships, and you know things that, that are more important to that. Mm. 
Mm. And it might just take the edge off a real rough day when you yeah. when you, your boss yelled at you or whatever yeah. it was. Seriously. And just understanding the whole fact that even though you've got a structure in place, your life's not always going to run. And this is hard for me to accept, but it's something that I've found is, is, is so often we'll have our structure. We think, okay, everything has to be this. I have to spend 20 hours at work. I have to spend 20 hours. You have to spend 20 hours. But it just doesn't work that way. I think just under, And it comes back to the whole idea of holding it loosely, even your structure, going, okay, this is a good planning phase, yep. but it's not necessarily going to work exactly how I've set it out. But at least I've done the process of planning towards what I'm actually prioritising. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we're coming towards the end of the, our talk here, Ty, yeah. because this is fascinating. We talk all day. Yeah. Um, just on the final note, so with your theme of your your documentary and being on really, you know, what is your Everest? Yes. Um, give me a final few words for people listening yeah. on pursuing their dreams. Yeah. And really, you know, they might look back in a few years' time and go, that podcast, yes. that, that Jocko interview, Tyson Popplestone yeah. with Everest, yeah. Pussa, that got me off the couch. Yeah. Give me a few words to yeah. get these people off the couch right now to have a think about and yeah. chase their dreams. Well, I think like we said before, I reckon the biggest thing I notice in people's lives is that we're so stuck in our routines and we're so stuck in our structures that we never actually find out what our talents are, what our passions are. So if that's you right now, like you might be in a phase where you've actually gone through a really hard time, you think you actually don't have anything to offer and that's actually completely untrue. You right now listening, you have something that you probably know about. You've got something in your life that you know you're good at. You know that naturally you're probably better at most people at without even having to try. Usually that's where your passion is. I just want to encourage you guys to actually take the time to find out how you can spot that gift, how you can draw it out of yourself and how you can apply it to your life because I have no doubt that the contribution that you can make to your society, the enjoyment you can get out of your life through using that thing, is going to be something that not only changes people's lives but actually excites you to be alive. So with that said, I just want to encourage you to get out there and chase it. Well, Tyce, thank you very much. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Corsa. Yes. Um, great to have you on board as well. Yeah. Mate, we're going to have to catch up with you maybe later in the year or at least once or twice coming up to Everest. Yes. Yeah. Um, and absolutely, when you come back from Everest, whether you've summoned it or not, yes. um, we are going to have you on here chatting and I'm sure it'll be fascinating. Um, thank you again Love and you um, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Exciting times. Thanks, boys.